Well, let's turn in our Bibles to First Timothy chapter 6 and see what the Lord has for us there. If you're a guest with us, we, it's our practice to work our way through different books in the Bible. And we're in First Timothy and we've reached uh, verse 13 of chapter 6. What I'm going to do, I'm going to start back at, at verse 11 and read the whole paragraph, which is 11 through 16. Uh, although we'll be putting our attention on verses 13, 14, and the first part of uh, verse 15. <clears throat> so, beginning at verse 11, it says, But flee from these things, you man of God, and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. And you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God, who gives life to all things, and of Christ Jesus, who testified the good confession before Pontius Pilate, that you keep the commandment without stain or reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ which he will bring about at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. It's interesting here, um, if you look again at verse 13, uh, Paul, Paul saying to Timothy, I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus who testified the good confession before Pontius Pilate that you keep the commandment. It's interesting there. So he's saying he's come to a place in his letter. He's nearing the end of his letter. He's about done. And um, he's he's laying on one last thing on to Timothy and he's saying to him keep the commandment and so it seems like if we're to understand this passage and try to get it onto our own life we have to understand well what is that commandment right I think so Uh, so what is that commandment and you would think that that would be an easy question and I think in the end it is but it can the way he stated it uh, can kind of throw us on the uh, or the way we read what he stated can maybe take us on a rabbit trail and say, oh, okay, it's the commandment. Keep the commandment. Okay, so what commandment is he talking about? And as you look through the book of First Timothy, you realize there there is no one commandment that he's mentioned. So then think, well, <laughs> well, which commandment are you talking about, Paul? And this is the way I understand it. If you turn back to chapter 1, verse 3, look at chapter 1, verse 3. And especially now we're thinking in light of the fact that there's no one command that he's highlighted throughout the book. In verse 3, he states right there at the beginning, he says, As I urged you upon my departure from Macedonia, remain on at Ephesus so that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines. And then he, then he goes on from there. So we, we see here that... Paul has left Timothy here in Ephesus for a certain reason. He's more or less the pastor, we'd call him, there. And he's there, and he's going to now um, try to counteract the false teaching that's, that's floating around. He's got to deal with the men who are the, the, the people 
dispensing the false teaching. And then he, he's going to set things right. In other words, he's going to highlight what the truth of God is. And he's, and his job is to try to take the truth of God in distinction to the, and in comparison to the, to the, the false doctrine that's been taught. The truth and how all this truth is to be applied and lived out among the Christians there. So this, when he comes to the end, he says, now keep the commandment. It's encompassing everything that he said in the book of First Timothy. It, what he's saying is, is keep the commandment. Take the gospel as it really is, not as other people are saying it is. And, and all of its implications to everybody in the church and to the people as the church. Fill, um, take that full picture and keep that commandment. Keep that commandment. And then everything else, now if you go back to chapter 6, verse uh, 13, everything else that's said in verse 13, 14, and 15 adds to and highlights the importance of this task of Timothy. Timothy, keep this commandment. He's saying, I'm charging you in the presence of God and in Christ Jesus. And in light of his second coming, that's what comes out later. He says, in light of all of that, now this is important. Keep this commandment. Now, in thinking about that, one thought that comes to mind is, well, then, does that only apply to church leaders? Is what we're reading here only applicable to pastors and elders, or is it for all of us? And um, I think that it is applicable in a more or less direct way to church leaders, but it's also applicable to all of us. It applies to all of us, for it's speaking to us about our faithfulness in what God has called us to do. It's about ending our lives right. It's about God leading you as a person and, and giving you a task to do here on earth, giving you a commission for your own life. There's a will of God for your life. And, and, and God is saying to you now, be faithful in that will. Follow it through. Keep the commandment. Don't give up or get sidetracked. And as we think about it in that light, and then I look back at these verses, I see at least five enormously important realities that we need to factor into the equation as we try to live our lives in a way that that pleases God and to finish our life well and to do what God's called us to do. And I want want us to look at those five realities, I'm calling them, this morning. The first one is the presence of God. The presence of God. Look again at verse 13. He says, I charge you... In the presence of God. I charge you in the presence of God. He's saying, Timothy, God is present with you. Now think about what I'm getting ready to tell you in light of the fact that God is right there. So there's God, there's you. Now I'm telling you, be faithful to the end and do what it is God's called you to do. Keep the commandment. He's saying, Timothy, God is with you. God is present with you. And what you do and what you say and what you think is all done and said and thought right in the very presence of God. You know, we, we often 
We, we, well, we can forget this, but, but we remember most of the time that God sees us, right? God sees us. And that is true. Um, but there's a difference or an added heightened awareness of God's almightiness when we think about the difference between seeing something and being with that something. How many of you have gone to a zoo? You ever been to a zoo? How many of you looked across the moat or through the whatever, the fence, and you saw little baby elephants? Anybody see little baby elephants? Aren't they cool? But you weren't with the elephant, right? You, you saw it from a distance. You saw the elephant. We, one time when we were in Africa, it's a long story. I won't bore you with it, all the details. <clears throat> or maybe it wouldn't be boring, but I wouldn't get the rest of the sermon done. But uh, in the neighboring village, uh, it was at the end of the rainy season, and there was only one water hole left in, in the village. So everybody depended on this one water hole. Well, so were the elephants. And they, they wouldn't leave so that, because water was getting scarce. So the elephants were not letting the people get the water. And um, that's probably how you get your water too, right? You wait till the elephants leave and then you get your, you get your water. And then, but this was getting difficult. So this one guy, it was very unusual. He had a gun, which is unusual over there. But anyway, he, he finally, out of frustration, he went out there and he shot one of the elephants. And it went down and all the elephants left. And then they realized that it was a, a nursing mother and there's a little baby elephant there left. So guess who got to keep the elephant? Oh man, was that fun. So I picked this elephant up and, um, and we drove it back to our house in the back of our pickup truck. Now that was, a, that was, that was an experience. That was an experience. Because we had a guy in the back trying, because it didn't want to be in the pickup truck. So I kept trying to jump out. Anyway, I'm getting, and this is a tangent. So for a while, I was with an elephant, a little baby elephant. And by the way, you probably didn't know this, and that has nothing to do with the sermon, but baby elephants snore. <laughs> and elephants snore loud. So we lost a lot of sleep in those days. But anyway, there's a difference between looking at, wow, look at that elephant, and then being right with the elephant. And God is, it's not just that God is up in heaven far, far away and he looks down with his binoculars and he sees you. He is with you. You see, you see this in verse 13. I charge you in the presence of God. You are in the presence of God. Turn to Psalm 139. Many of you know, but turn there anyway. If you're using our Bibles here, it's on page 755, 755. Psalm 139. Look at verse 7. Where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? Can I go and hide somewhere where you're not? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the dawn, if I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, even there your hand will lead me and your right hand will lay hold of me. If I say, surely the darkness will overwhelm me and the light around me will be night. Even the darkness is not dark to you and the night is as bright as the day. Darkness and light are alike to you. He's saying, wherever I go, there you are. You're right there. I can't escape you 
You are present with me. The presence of God. As we think about finishing our lives well and living our life to the end of our life, being faithful to what God wants us to do, what, I, what he wants me to do, I want to finish it to the end. I need to remember and be aware of the presence of God. He is with us. We think about in the New Testament, the teaching there, that we are temples of the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 6.19 says, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? There's many implications of that teaching, many ways that teaching goes, but the part I'm highlighting now is that it's saying the Holy Spirit is in me. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, the Spirit of God dwells in you. It's not just that God um, is particularly interested in you and is trying to keep track of you. God is in you. The presence of God. And this is a comfort to us. It is a comfort to us. If you're still in Psalms, turn to Psalm 142. 142. To know that God is with us is extremely comforting to us. In Psalm 142, David is crying out to God, and in a sense it's a complaint, but it's, a, it's an expression of the anguish of his own heart as he's going through a difficult time. In verse 1, he starts, he says, I cry aloud with my voice to the Lord. I make supplication with my voice to the Lord. I pour out my complaint before him. I declare my trouble before him. When my spirit was overwhelmed within me, You knew my path. In the way where I walk, they've hidden a trap for me. Look to the right and see, for there is no one who regards me. There is no escape for me. No one cares for my soul. What's happening to him? Look again at verse 4. He's saying, look, there's dangers in my path. There's distresses in my way. And I looked around me, and there's no one that shares this with me. This is a... This is a difficult thing. It's, it's one thing to go through a difficult time. It's another to go through a difficult time alone. Isn't that true? To struggle when you're alone and to go through difficulties alone. But perhaps God allows those times in our lives f- for this very reason. And to, that is to learn that ultimately we are not alone. Amen. He is with us. And that's part of what Psalm 142 is saying is, I look around and there's no one to help, but I'm finding you. I find you there. Hebrews 13, verses 5 and 6, it says, He himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you, so that we can confidently say, The Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. So when we think about the presence of God, in our lives. It's a great comfort to us for it helps us. And we remember that he is with us and we can find him and his help as we need him. But it's also a challenge to us. It's a challenge to us to live right because if he is with us, he's right with us. Well, we can't get away with anything, can we? This probably never happened in your experience, but 
um, in, when I was at school, things in the classroom changed when the teacher left the room. Oh, it happened to you too. Of course, not me. I just sat quietly. Uh, yeah, but uh, yeah, my classmates like started carrying on and stuff. But the teacher's always in the room. God is right here. He's right with me. Listen to Isaiah 29, 15. Woe to those who deeply hide their plans from the Lord and whose deeds are done in a dark place. And they say, who sees us or who knows us? He's saying, woe to those that have plans that are hidden from everyone else, that have thoughts and deeds that are hidden because the point is they're not hidden. And he does know. The question is, who sees us? God. Uh, Who knows us? God. And so this truth about his presence with us both comforts us in our need and it also challenges us to live right and to put off sin and to deal with him who is present and sees and knows when we find within our own hearts thoughts that aren't right and perhaps shock us in their wickedness. God knows them already. So turn to him and and deal with him and say, oh, God, change me, help me, make me into the person you want me to be. That's the first reality. The second reality, and this might surprise you, but the second reality is the local church. Now, what do I mean by that? Think about this for a minute. Look back. Now, turn back to First Timothy. First Timothy chapter 6, verse 13. I charge you. Now, the language he uses here, I can't imagine how he would make this more serious, right? I don't know how he could make this charge that he's going to give Timothy more exalted, more somber and serious. Listen to what he says. I charge you in the presence of God, who gives life to all things, and of Christ Jesus, who testified the good confession before Pontius Pilate, that you keep the commandment without stain or reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will bring about at the proper time. One of the, one of the issues that, that leads to the discussion about what is this commandment that Paul is talking about is the language that it's couched in. After you read it like that, you think, wow, this is amazing. I mean, whatever he's talking about is important. Maybe the commandment is the Great Commission. Or maybe the commandment are the great commandments. Love God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself. Maybe, you know, surely language so exalted and somber as this, it must be pointing to something other than just Paul's instructions to Timothy about the church in Ephesus. But you see, we're biased when we think that way. We're biased by our own low thoughts about what a local church is and how a local church is viewed in God's eyes. Because when you go back and you realize, no, the commandment is, is dealing with Timothy's role in that local church. And yet the language is so exalted. And what I'm trying to say here is that the local church, whatever one it is, is extremely important to God. 
Amen? This language is talking about that. It challenges us to, to, to think about how we view the church that we're a part of. And every church is full of problems. That's because it's full of people. You know, the one thing I've heard, you've probably heard it, is if you're looking for a perfect church and you find it, make sure you don't join it because then it won't be perfect. (laughs) You know, don't mess it up. We're all imperfect pictures of what the church is supposed to be, but hopefully we're all trying. We're always trying to be better. But, But we're all imperfect. And yet, let me ask you a question. Was it perfect in Ephesus? Are you kidding me? They had all these false teachers running around spewing out the wrong stuff and messing people's lives up. That's what, that's what the book of 1 Timothy is about. Paul is saying to Timothy, hey, straighten it up. There's a problem. So this is a, a problem-filled church here in Ephesians. And yet, this exalted language elevates the importance of that very congregation. And so it is with us. God looks at the local bodies of his believers that, are, that meet in places, and he views those extremely importantly. And it challenges me to think about our church. I hope it challenges you to think about how you think about your church. Are we a group of people with whom you sing and listen to sermons? Or are there people here who have become family to you? Are we people with whom you share certain beliefs and with whom you participate in certain programs? Is that the extent of it? Or are there people here with whom you can truly say, those people are a part of my life? So you see, that's the way it ought to be. Is church something you can do with or do without? Or do you value it the way this verse values the church? It's amazing. It's amazing. And so I choose to look, me personally, I choose to look at whatever church I'm a part of. In the moment, it's this one, right? Don't have any plans for it to be somewhere else. But I mean, here we are. Here we are. And I choose to look at it the way God looks at it and recognize we've got problems, but we've got a lot of good things too. And God's here and I'm going to view it the way God looks at it. And so that should draw out of me a commitment to my fellow believers who meet. We all meet together a commitment to you. That's extraordinary. That's extraordinary. That's different than my commitment to other people in the Lehigh Valley. Amen. Amen. It may seem odd, but the only reason it's odd is because we've avoided this teaching or the church as a whole has has missed it. But when we think about finishing our life well, when we think about keeping the commandment, what's God's will for my life? I want to live that to the end of my life. The local church is one of the realities that has to be factored into the equation. Thirdly, third reality is personal holiness. Look look there again. I charge you, verse 13, I charge you in the presence of God, who gives life to all things, and of Christ Jesus, who testified the good confession before Pontius Pilate, that you keep the commandment without stain or reproach. Without stain or reproach. 
Don't stain the commandment. Don't stain yourself. Bring no reproach upon God in God's name. Bring no reproach upon yourself. Live the right way. This is what Paul's saying to, to Timothy. Later in his second letter, turn there to 2 Timothy, just a few pages over, chapter 2, verse 20. He talks about this in more detail. 2 Timothy 2, verse 20. He uses an illustration about a house and all the utensils. In in this language, it uses the word vessel, like bowls and cups and things like that. Pots. Verse 20. Now in a large house, there are not only gold and silver vessels, but also vessels of wood and of earthenware, and some to honor and some to dishonor. Some are used for really... um, Special occasions and some are used for even, you know, dirty purposes, things that make them dirty. It says some to honor and some to dishonor. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from these things, he will be a vessel for honor, sanctified, useful to the master, prepared for every good work. Now flee from youthful lusts and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. See what he's saying here is a key phrase in this is in verse 21, where he's that useful to the master. I want to be a utensil in the master's hand. Amen. Isn't that what you want to be? You want to be a a nice fork or spoon or a utensil in the, in the master's hand that he's going to use, but you got to be clean to do it. See, I've got to be clean. So he's saying, flee from youthful lusts and pursue these other things, these other virtues. And in verse 21, he says, now, um, if anyone cleanses himself from these things, you can clean yourself, keep your life clean. And if it isn't clean, get it clean. That's what God is saying. Personal holiness matters. It's not just what we do, but it's who we are. Real Christianity the kind that the scripture's talking about is a Christianity where I've met Jesus Christ through faith and then I allow him to keep cleaning my life up as I walk with him. And it's important. And that's what he's doing. He's not just trying to get you to accomplish something for him. He's trying to get you to yield to him that your life begins to reflect his life. And as that happens, he uses you in in ways that he wouldn't have before. Some of Jesus's harshest words, well, we know they they probably were the most harsh, were to the Pharisees, who were very religious on the outside, but but left something to be desired on the inside. Listen to what Jesus said to them in Matthew twenty three. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites For you are like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside appear beautiful, but inside they're full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. So you too outwardly appear righteous to men, but inwardly you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Let's make sure we're not hypocrites. Amen. Let's make sure we're not Pharisees. And no... What I'm saying by that is it it doesn't mean that we don't have 
room to grow. It's exactly the opposite. Let's just be honest with God. I need to grow, God. Clean me up. Clean me up on the inside. Make my insides as clean as what I can look like on the outside. And God takes us that way and changes us. Isn't it, isn't it great? We can forever bless God that this process of being cleaned up comes after we found forgiveness and not before. Amen? See, the gospel is all about Jesus Christ came and died on the cross. And on the cross, he gained forgiveness for our sins. He suffered on the cross the penalty that you and I deserve. My sins earned God's displeasure. God's displeasure fell on Jesus Christ as a substitute for me. And so he's taken away the guilt of my sin and I'm forgiven. Amen? He didn't say, now if you clean or act up enough, you'll get forgiven. He's exactly the opposite. He forgives us and then he says, now Cliff, I got a big job ahead of me, but I'm going to start cleaning you up. Amen? So, so we're not earning forgiveness by cleaning ourselves up. We're responding to forgiveness by letting God clean us up. But it's important and it's what God's about. Personal holiness. Fourth, fourth reality. And in a, in a sense, it's, it's the overarching issue that we're talking about today. But I also want to make it one piece. And I think you'll see why in a moment. But it's faithfulness to God's will. I want to keep the commandment. I want to do what God wants me to do in my life. You want, you want to be faithful to what God wants you to do in your life. And so we were to be faithful. We're to be faithful. We get that from this, this pa- passage here in 14 where it says, keep the commandment. We don't want to, com- to quit. We want to persevere in it. But you'll notice the way it's written that it seems that Paul is assuming that there will be opposition and danger and difficulty. And he's saying in the midst of all that, persevere. I picked that up a little bit in verse 13 where it says, I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things. There's a hint there that um, we may be afraid that we're going to lose our life. Um, There's dangers there, and Timothy certainly knew that, and so did Paul. There's opposition to the gospel, and, and Paul is reminding him, God is with you. He's the giver of life. He'll take care of you. But then in, uh, as it goes on, it says, and of Christ Jesus, who testified the good confession before Pontius Pilate. This is a reference to the fact that Jesus was tortured. He was tortured. And yet he maintained his faithfulness to the good confession right to the end. He's saying, look at Christ tortured yet faithful now you no matter what your difficulty remain faithful you know one of the issues that occurs in our lives as we live our lives and we try to be faithful to what we believe God has called each of us to do is that we can begin to wonder at times um, is my life counting for anything Am I, is this really, is it really what I'm supposed to be doing? Um, is, is, is God using my life? Is it or not? At a time like that, and I, I have those times quite often, about seven or eight times a day, um, 
I'm built that way. I'm a little bit introspective. My dear wife puts up with it all the time. But God's spoken to me through Isaiah 11. Look at Isaiah 11. Well, I'll read it to you if, if you don't want to turn there. I don't have the page number here. But Isaiah 11 is a prophecy about Christ. And listen to, beginning at verse 1, and listen to how it's said. It says, Then a shoot will spring up from the stem of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. So this shoot is Christ, comes up. And the Spirit of the Lord will rest on him. And then it, it speaks about different ministries of the Spirit to and through Christ. It says, the Spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the Spirit of counsel and strength, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. And he, now here's the line, and he will not judge by what his eyes see, nor make a decision by what his ears hear. There's great comfort and strength and insight in this passage. It's saying that Christ, who is the judge of all things, he doesn't judge just by what eyes see or by what ears hear. He judges in ways that you and I can't do. He sees what we can't see. He hears what we can't hear. And his judgment of our life and of the 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 um, productivity of our life the usefulness of our life is not necessarily judged by the way you would judge it and so he asks you just be faithful and be what i've asked you to be and leave the judging of it all up to me because even when you try to judge it is my life really useful to god or not you can't see the way sees you can't hear the way hears so you can't tell he can tell it reminds me of this story, and, and um, this happened in the 1800s, and, and some of the records are a little different, so some of the stories come across a little different. But in May the 7th, 1824, in Vienna, Austria, the great composer Beethoven got up to give the premier performance of his Ninth Symphony, one of his most famous symphonies. It was his first on-stage appearance in over 12 years. The auditorium was packed solid with people. But at this point in his life, Beethoven was deaf. He had actually composed the Ninth Symphony while he was deaf and was deaf as he got up to, to conduct the symphony. And so at the great crescendo at the end of the, um, at the, end of the concert... Now, here's where some of, the, uh, some of the accounts differ, but one account says that he, they ended and he, he appeared almost crestfallen as if it had been a failure. And um, one of the, cons- the, the symphony members came over and to him and turned him, for he was deaf. And when he turned and he looked, the place was in an uproar. The people were on their feet. They were throwing their hats in the air. They were cheering. And they gave him five standing ovations. The king only got three. The police had to stop it because they felt like it was inappropriate for one man, especially a composer of music, to receive more ovation than the very king. And Beethoven left the symphony hall deeply moved by what had happened. 
but he couldn't hear the applause. And I think, I think sometimes that with us, um, we're like Beethoven. We actually can't hear God's applause until later. Okay. What we're called to do is to do what it is God has asked us to do and to leave the applause, leave the judgment up to him. For even when we try to hear it, we can't hear it. In heaven, it all will make sense. Be faithful. Be faithful to what God has asked you to do. Just be faithful and leave the applause and the judgment to him. Well, lastly, fifth, fifth um, reality that we need to keep in mind as we seek to be faithful. Turn back to 1 Timothy 6, if you're not there now. And that is the Lord's return. Look um, again at verse 14. That you keep the commandment without stain or reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will bring about at the proper time. Jesus Christ is coming back to earth again. Amen. He's actually coming back. And, and Paul is telling Timothy, he's propping him up. He's saying, you be faithful in what you, what God's asked you to do because Jesus is coming again. He's coming back. So be faithful, be faithful. And notice there at the first part of verse 15, he says, which he will bring about at the proper time, at the proper time, maybe not at the time that, um, you think is proper, but it's the proper time. Maybe not, it's, may, might not be at the time when someone thinks it's going to be, but it's at the proper time. You know, we've got, um, I mentioned this briefly last week, but uh, we've got one radio personality. He's already got the date picked in this May. He knows when Jesus is coming back. Interesting. He made a big deal in 1994. He had a date in 1994, too. That's interesting. Um, why we're still listening to this guy, I don't know. But um, you don't ha- we don't have to get upset about things like that. And then there's the big deal about the Mayan calendar, right? Everybody worried about that. Relax. Relax. Jesus is coming back, and it's going to be at the proper time. Reminds so All the talk about this kind of stuff reminds me of what Jesus said in Mark 13. Let me read it to you. It says, but of that day or hour, referring to his coming, no one knows. No one, including the guy on the radio, including the people making the movies about the Mayan calendar. Okay, nobody knows. Um, not even the angels in heaven, nor the son, but the father alone. Take heed, keep on the alert, for you do not know when the appointed time will come. It is like a man away on a journey who, upon leaving his house and putting his servants in charge, assigning to each one his task, also commanded the doorkeeper to stay on the alert. Therefore, be on the alert. For you do not know when the master of the house is coming, whether in the evening, at midnight, or when the rooster crows, or in the morning. In case he should come suddenly and find you asleep, what I say to you, I say to all, be on the alert. That's what Jesus Christ tells us. Amen. Jesus doesn't tell us, try to figure out the date. He says, you don't know, so be ready. Amen. Amen. And so Paul is saying to Timothy, 
You want to you wanna be faithful to what God has asked you to do with your life? And remember, Jesus is coming. Jesus is coming. And when he comes, he's going to um, right all the wrongs. Amen? He's going to right the wrongs. He's going to judge all the world. And he's going to bring to completeness his kingdom on earth. And he's the one who hears the, it's, it's his applause that we're, we're, we're working for anyway, which we can't always hear clearly here on earth. So just be faithful. And when he comes, he's going to explain it all. You'll, you'll, you'll understand. Or we won't care anymore. It could be that too. Some of the questions that seem so important to us now may not actually be that important. If that's the case, we won't care. If they are important, we'll see the answer. But he's coming to set things right. In Psalm 98, it says, Let the sea roar and all it contains, the world and those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the mountains sing together for joy before the Lord. For he is coming to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. He will set everything right, all the injustice, all, all the unaccounted for evil that people have gotten away with. They won't get away with it. It's all going to be set right. In Romans 14, it says, we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall give praise to God. And so then each one of us will give an account of himself to God. That day is coming. It's coming as Jesus comes, following his coming. And so Paul says to Timothy, He's coming. He's going to set everything right. The one who understands it all will come and explain it if it's needed to be explained. And all that you're doing, if you're doing it for him, it all fits with his purposes. So be faithful. Keep the commandment. He is coming. The presence of God, the local church, personal holiness, faithfulness to God's will, and the Lord's return. Those are the five realities that need to be factored into our, the equation as we, each one of us individually, seek to be faithful to what God has called us to do. Amen? May the Lord take this and use it in our lives to make us faithful. Let's stand together to close. Thank you, Father, for the Lord Jesus who, who takes away our sin and then cleans us up. And Lord, I pray that in whatever way your word has touched on individual lives this morning, I pray, O oh Father, that we would be responsive to you, that we would have tender hearts, that we would listen and respond to your word. Each of us are in different places in our lives. For some, it's the issue of personal holiness that you've touched on. For others, it's the presence, your presence with them that you've touched on. For others, it's, it's uh, the accountability that will take place at your coming. For, for others, it's another issue. But for each of us, Father, you've spoken to us and we ask. We, we ask that you would give us ready hearts to respond in obedience to you, to submit our lives to you. We do that even now, O oh Lord. Work your will in our lives, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Lord bless.